Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Insights division of Cantor. I'm Felipe Tomas. Professor of Marketing at Said Business School. Our guest today is Michael Fanuel, who is a marketing strategist and author. Um, And having read your CV, Michael, your resume, um, you've worked in a whole load of different places. And I noticed that you studied Victorian studies when you were at university. So I I was going to kick you off with a bit of a weird one. What can we learn from Victorians today? Oh, I love that question. First of all, Jane and Philippe, it is really nice to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Wow, what can we not learn from Dickens and Disraeli and Gladstone? Uh, amazing storytellers. Uh, the, the thing that, that attracted me to Victorian studies, though, was its cross-disciplinary nature. I, I went to a school where the art history and the English and the history and the biology departments all sort of mingled together to contend with these, these, these topics that sort of affect all of us. And, and I mean, how can you understand Dickens without understanding the Industrial Revolution, for example? And, and that ability to look at things culturally as opposed to just in your vertical silo is such a needed virtue in the world of marketing. I, I mean, I even look around agencies today and you've got your strategy people and your data and analytics people and your media people and your writing people and your design people. And it's like, oh, at some point, we've just got to have people, people. And uh, <laughs> at least for me, Victorian studies, though it could have been Renaissance studies or 20th century studies or future studies or classic studies, the, 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 the idea of looking at the world horizontally uh, was really useful, has been really compelling. I don't know if you were around, Michael, mm. in the times when agencies were... In the Victorian times. Not I was in the not. Victorian times, no. I was going to say maybe like 20 years ago when media agencies and creative agencies actually worked together. Do you think we might be seeing a return to that? Like they were part of the same team, weren't they? Jeez, I hope so. As you know, we're now in a situation where creative agencies are undervalued by clients who are in-housing things, who are cutting fees left and right, who are turning to robots to literally write copy. 
And media agencies are sort of off in their own analytical world, not really grounded in relationships with CMOs and CEOs. It's all conversations about reach and frequency. I, I think when you look at the most powerful forces for the future of marketing, they are going to be teams that are equally adept at invention as they are at execution, creativity and media. Yeah, Michael, especially connecting to that point earlier that you had about your original studies are connecting these separate topics and the ability to look across very much along the lines of you saying like the, the media are creative and all those people needing to look across and kind of understand this world. You've also had quite extensive set of experiences across different jobs, companies and stakeholders that you've had to manage and oversee. Can you tell me a little bit about how that was like your career and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. I am. Um, I've sort of pinballed through different experiences, but I think there's been a pretty consistent through line, which is that I've been lucky to be with the people at the places where big, bold ideas get hatched to help the fortunes of brands. When I got out of school, I worked in politics, and I always advise people in marketing to spend some time working on a political campaign because the intense level of accountability is refreshing, right? There is a day and on that day you win or you lose. But, but, but I, then, I then learned that there was this thing in advertising agencies called planners or strategists. And I, I was under the, 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 the assumption that everybody in an ad agency sat around in beanbag chairs coming up with scripts, but, but no, Lo and behold, there were these people who were part anthropologists, part psychologists, part creatives. And, uh, and I got to be one of those. And I, I worked at some, some amazing agencies, both in New York and London and Minneapolis, with awesome people. And uh, every step of the way, I was just honored that I got to be the sort of propellant in a process of creativity that was often wonderfully beyond the control of any uh, any reins of rationality. Planners and strategists are often made out in in advertising speak to be like Renaissance people, right? They're brilliant at everything, um, as in you know they get the numbers, they understand people, and they can synthesize and put things together into into some sort of coherent strategy and and for, to help the formation of ideas. Is that a harsh view or, or do you think, is, is there another definition that you'd like to propose for what a planner or a strategist actually does? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think my perception on this changed when I went from being a strategist at ad agencies to being an actual client. Mm. When I was at ad agencies, I would hear from clients all the time, as we all do, I love the strategy, but I'm not so sure about the creative idea. Yeah. And most honest planners would admit that when they heard that, they sort of felt a little secretly proud. Of course, I did a good job with the strategy. The strategy is brilliant, but those damn creatives once again couldn't crack the idea to the client's satisfaction. When I became a client, I quickly saw that when a client says, I love the strategy, but not the creative idea, it is a failure of strategy. It means that the strategy was so coherent, so reassuring, so safe that it made it much more difficult for a normally anxious client to take some sort of creative leap. I, I mean, it, it was bizarre to me when I was a client that strategic setups, 
the, the ones I had done as a planner, the ones I loved and respected from my fellow planner strategists and colleagues, those very strategic setups became the weapons nervous clients would use to beat up and bash bold and brave creative ideas. As soon as we start approaching clients in a way that is rational and measured and thorough and neat and elegant, we make it so much more difficult for them to misbehave and face it. Misbehave is what we want them to do when they're buying creative ideas, when they're buying innovative notions and innovative thoughts. So, so, so I, I guess what I'm saying is we judge strategists by the wrong measure. The only way to judge a great strategist is by the work she has helped put out into the world, not by the elegance of the strategy itself. There's a component there that I'm interested in because it seems like there's a missed opportunity on the client side, on the brand side, on leveraging this work appropriately. You, you mentioned anxiety, fear, and concerns, and actually kind of a, a massive risk avoidance. And yes. you've worked on that side as well, and having that view from the client side. What lessons are there for us to not make those mistakes? How do we leverage that talent better? Well, it, it's interesting. Everybody in the world of marketing and, and, and media agencies, creative agencies, research, innovation agents, we all know that money matters to our clients. And most of us even know that most of our clients' compensation is wrapped up in annual bonuses and incentives that depend upon short-term metrics, many of which we would probably think are kind of irrelevant. But we, we, we forget when we're in the heat of having a, an interaction with a client that one of their dominant emotions is anxiety. You know, can I pay my mortgage this year? Will I be able to save enough money to send my kids to college? And, and we're asking them to be bold and brave and take risks and be a challenger and be disruptive and be all those delicious things that win in our world when in their world there is an undercurrent of, of anxiety and worry. So, so, so I, I think the greatest agencies have a way of reassuring clients that is ultimately deeply human. You, you know, the way you would look at a friend who's nervous about uh, the first day on a job, the way you would look at, 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 a, at a relative or a family member who's about to leap into a new school or a new situation or a new relationship, the way that we honestly and humanly make connections with one another to reassure one another in moments of anxiety, we need to start bringing to our relationships with clients. And, and, and honestly, I think the number one way of doing that is by looking and seeing the awesomeness of the person in front of you, right? right? So when a parent says to a child, I know you're nervous about the first day of school, but you got this. You are funny and charming and smart. It's a moment of strengthening them. Think about, though, what most agencies do when they approach clients. It's all the opposite. It's you got a problem. <laughs> And we've got the solution. Oh, geez. I couldn't imagine looking my 12-year-old my in the eyes the day before <laughs> school with him racked by anxiety and saying, you've got a problem, but here's the solution. Yeah, it's a recipe for disaster, that, yeah. <laughs> right, if you want to get the best out of people, you've got to see the best in people. So moving on from that thought um, to a related point, you've just written a book called Stop Making Sense, The Art of Inspiring Anybody. 
And I think it sounds like a, a fascinating topic. It's about how leaders can be inspiring. So what, what makes a great leader from your point of view? You've, you've seen a few. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'd gotten interested in the topic of inspiration years ago when I was dragged against my will to a U2 concert. But I had to go to the show. It was my friend's birthday party, and he loves you too. And halfway through the show, I found myself totally transported. You know, I, I went in despising this guy, and suddenly I wanted to sign up for Amnesty International. I wanted to quit my job. I wanted to move to Africa and dig irrigation ditches. I was like, what the heck is happening to me? And and I got very intellectually interested in the, in the topic of inspiration and was shocked to see how little academic research had been done on it. Academics have spent a ton of time and treasure studying motivation and persuasion and how we nudge people to better behaviors. But inspiration was always seen as a kind of artsy-fartsy thing from beyond, an occasional sort of gift from the gods. So, so I got really interested in, in, in inspiration and how it works and, and how we might be able to become muses in our own way whether we're running a company of thousands of people or just trying to trying to get the kids to finish their homework. And I, I think what, what, what struck me isn't just uh, the qualitative sense that inspiration is powerful, but the quantitative case to be made for it. So, so Bain and company did a study where they looked at hundreds of companies around the world and quantified somehow that an inspired employee is 225% more productive than an uninspired one, right? An inspired employee does more. And, and again, we don't need Bain and Company for that because we know it. We work nights, we work weekends, when we're stoked, when we're excited. Right? The greatest problem of modern work is that we work too much. It's that we're uninspired while we work. So so, so I, I guess that, that that's, that's a roundabout way way of saying, I've gotten really excited by the effect that inspiration could have on the real productivity and breakthrough of the world around us. And, uh, and I became a little bit obsessed with trying to figure out how we each could conjure that awesome power in our own lives to achieve whatever we wanted to. Okay, so do you think everybody has the potential to be inspirational in, in their role um, or, or in their lives? I mean, does it, does it require any emotional intelligence or self-understanding? Uh, or, or do you think anyone is capable of this? I think anybody can inspire. Mm -hmm. Anybody can be amused. And I know that's true because neuroscientists have just begun to explain how inspiration works. And it works through what's, what's called our mirror neurons, right? They're the parts of our brain that help us learn by replicating what we see in the world, right? So a little baby sees her mother's mouth move, mirror neurons fire, she learns how to speak. Well, well the awesome thing is that mirror neurons also mirror emotion. So when you see somebody sad, you feel sad. When you see somebody indignant, you feel stress and tension. When you see somebody passionate, you feel aroused. You feel passionate. You feel glued to that person and their ambition and their, their identity and their mission. So, you know, I'm simplifying it radically. But if you can express emotion, you can be amused. If you could express emotion, you can inspire. 
The problem is we live in a world in which we ha have structures that conspire to suppress our emotions. And you see it at work all the time, even in the most enlightened workplaces where we believe in purpose and we've read Simon Sinek and we're tend to mindfulness retreats. There's always the moment when the manager says, now let's think rationally about this. Let's weigh the pros and cons, women especially. Right, right. Women, women for decades have been told, don't be so emotional at work. It's what keeps you back. It's what holds you down. You know, I, I think the, the worst two words in the corporate lexicon are chill out. When people get excited about something, to have a boss or a manager say, suppress that excitement, suppress that, that, that passion, isn't just cruel, it's self-defeating. I want to pick up on one of the things that you said on the the reflective nature on the emotion and so on, and not just on the chill out component, which can have this dampening effect. Is this connected to like social contagion in any way? In that if you have somebody that's inspired, then you can suddenly have a whole host of individuals be inspired. Well, ab absolutely. I mean, passion is 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 literally infectious. You know, it's transferred across our mirror neurons from person to person. And it's probably exacerbated in group settings because, as we know, people are nudged by the, uh, the effect, uh, the bandwagon effect. So, so yeah, ab absolutely. Pa passion is wildfire. All right. So let's say I want to be that inspired leader and I want to get this fire started. What, what kind of skills do I need? Well... There are six skills of inspiration you could find in my book. <laughs> wow, that's really convenient. There are, but, 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 but I've got to back up a second. So, so it's not just about passion. Scientists have also recognized what gets in the way of inspiration. And uh, most people aren't going to like the answer to that. It is, uh, it is thinking. So at UCLA, they've done this amazing experiment where they hooked up the brains of sports fans to fMRI machines. And they looked at those brains while those fans were watching their favorite teams. And as, as you know, that is a moment that is intense. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's emotional. It's absorbed. Your reptilian brain is on fire. It looks a lot like a brain that is in the process of being inspired. The thing that breaks that magic, the thing that cracks that mirror is play-by-play -play analysis and color commentary. As soon as some know-it-all starts explaining things to you, your ability to feel intensely is severely mitigated, severely limited. So, so for me, the inspiration equation is simple, but it's bizarre. It is passion minus reason. 
That's inspiration. Passion minus reason. You need to express your passion, your ambition for your vision, your purpose, whatever the heck you want to call it, in a way that is just unusual enough, just irrational enough, just extraordinary enough that it doesn't get stuck in that sticky trap of the prefrontal cortex. You, you, you know, at, at heart, the more you try to persuade, logic, reason, argue, bullet point, anybody to do anything, the less likely you are to move them. By all means, use all the logic and reason and bullet points and data and analysis you want to figure out what it is you want to do, what your strategy is. But when it is go time, when it is mobilize time, when it is work the weekend to crush the pitch time, when it is go out onto the field and give it your all time, when it is get yourself to the gym, when it is quit your job and open your cupcake shop, when it is inspire half of the country to vote for your candidate instead of the other, when it is go time, reason is a disgusting and ugly barrier to action. That's really hard for the modern mind to swallow, but it is true. Let's talk about companies now in this context, because companies are, you know, corporate bodies. You know, brands exist in, in people's minds, yet they are made up of collections of different people, all with different thought processes and different leadership styles. So is it possible for one person to inspire and change uh, a company and change its culture? Or does it rely on everybody being a part of that? Yeah, well, well, of course it's possible for one person, right? If, if that person has um, an opportunity to influence the others. <laughs> hmm. So generally, it's a possibility easily, easily implemented by managers and leaders. But that doesn't mean you can't have sort of bottom-up inspiration. I mean, think about, think about the movies we love and the stories we love. They're generally stories of underdogs. Right, and mm -hmm. because underdogs are the best people in the world. Being an underdog is, is the first step to being a hero, and and that's what we love, and that, that that's what we want to be. Um, so abs absolutely anybody can do it. I think the problem, though, is so so one of the skills of inspiration that I think is very powerful is all about ambition, and it's about making our ambitions delusional. Nobody's inspired to do small things. We're actually inspired to do big and great things. Al Gore, when he was running for president of the United States in 2000, said he wanted to lower carbon emissions 20%. That was actually a pretty ambitious goal, but he lost. Barack Obama said he wanted to lower the tides of the oceans. Right? That's delusional. But he won. <laughs> and, and he didn't win because of that statement, but he won because he had a way of framing things in epic terms where we were the ones we were waiting for. And there was a sense of good and evil and future and potential and promise. Things were grand. Things were epic. We were underdogs. We could be heroes. And every now and then a brand gets that uh, sense of delusional ambition right. So Nike, of course, wants to inspire the athlete in everybody. Dove wanted every woman to feel beautiful. You know, Old Spice probably took on the most delusional ambition, making pimply-faced 14-year-old boys feel like strapping rock stars. The more brands get delusional, the more they move market. And yet, too much of the conversation we have around brand ambition is 
sad and modest. It's, you know, let's increase sales 3% based on last year's, you know, goals. You know, let's have a better quarter than last quarter. Everything seems tiny. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. There's just nothing inspiring about that. So how do I tell that line? Um, I have a company with short-term goals and long-term goals. Uh, there's a constant fight over what's right, what's wrong. Short-termism, right. long-term view, uh, small attainable things, big desirable things. And managers are going to be constantly facing that the decision, right? This barrier of where do I go, left, right, long, short. So how do I find the, the, the right balance between that long-term growth, short-term profitability, rationality, profitability, and yeah. delusion, to your point? Well, I don't think you do find a balance. I think you uh, err on the side of delusion. Something like 70% of companies that were in the New York Stock Exchange, top 100 companies 30 years ago, are no longer there. To, to the innovator, belongs the spoils. Right. Now, that said, there's certainly a role for short-term incremental goals. There absolutely is. The mistake we make, though, is when we have conversations that mix the value of those short-term objectives with the more delusional things. They're separate conversations. They're separate meetings. You see this with, with consultants and marketers and agencies approaching clients all the time. The meeting where you hammer out what the strategy for growth is going to be, who's our growth consumer, what do we need to change about their perceptions and their beliefs, it's so important. But that is not the same meeting where you're saying, buy this campaign for the World Cup. They're very, very different moments. And I think we need to be really clear when we're going into a meeting, is this a thinking meeting or is it a creating meeting? If it's a creating meeting, as I said before, all of the thinky, thinky, rational analysis gets in the way of great leaps and great strides. So I, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if I were the manager of a company, I would be very, very clear what the delusional ambition uh, to which I'm holding all of my managers accountable is. And then I'd be very clear that there are certain operational or short-term goals that we need to meet in order to get there. But, but, but again, I, I, I'd be very careful about, um, about holding them accountable for those goals in the same moment, I'm asking them to do things that might be at odds with achieving those goals. I think you err on the side of delusion. You were, at one point, Michael, Chief Creative Officer for General Mills. Um, what did that actually mean? What did that role involve there? So it was a new role that, that General Mills hatched. They had a CMO for many years, a man named Mark Addicts, who was a wizard of everything. He was operationally brilliant. He was creatively generous he was inspiring he was thoughtful he was amazing and as he was retiring they really thought about how they could restructure the marketing function to capture a lot of what was brilliant about him and they uh, they hired a cmo who is a woman that had worked there for a while named ann simons who is also absolutely brilliant but they wanted to give her a partner who would essentially be the kind of fairy dust in the equation. That's where I came in. To really help this company use creativity 
use divergent thinking, use innovation to succeed in a world where it, where it felt like the market was turning against the very things that they were making, producing, and selling. So I essentially came in to, to be the, the bracing rush of cold air and the corporate culture. And we did a lot. I mean, the first thing we did was we rewrote the entire corporate purpose. You know, I, I think this was a food company that had forgotten it was a food company. <laughs> they talked about managing brands and making lives more rich and convenient, but they weren't really talking much about, about food, about the thing they wanted people to put in their mouths. So we rewrote the corporate purpose to a, a very simple notion that we serve the world by making food people love. And before anybody took any action, be it the marketing world or the supply world or the sales world or the finance world, they had to ask themselves, does doing this make it more or less likely that people will love the food that we're making? But, but we, we did all sorts of things. We, we did create an internal agency because there was so much creative content we needed to produce that uh, which simply smarter more efficient for us to do that close to home as opposed to farming it out. We changed our marketing protocol and the way we developed ideas for our brands. We did our first review of creative and media agencies in decades uh, to get some fresh new partners and perspectives in the mix. So, so I, I, I mean, my, my, my role was really one focused on how do we use creativity to grow but operationally, it sort of uh, spanned different different functions and disciplines. You just in, inspired a thought about kind of in-housing, because obviously there's a bit of a trend now towards in-housing for media functions right. and for sort of data management and that kind of thing. And I was just thinking, were you a kind of early proponent of in-housing and now everyone's getting to grips with it? Or yeah. um, is, is creative the new thing that will be in-housed, do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a balance to strike. There's definitely some content that should be created quickly and efficiently. And companies that are in the business of creating quick and efficient operations should by all means go ahead and do that. But the, the need for, for an outside team of ninjas to look at your business and offer a fresh perspective, geez, I hope that that never goes away. Um, so I, I, I I think that that when you look at some of the world's biggest marketers, they're trying to find that balance between the stuff we think we can do efficiently in-house and the stuff where we want to be dazzled, where we want our circuitry to be kind of rewired, which generally could only happen from, from an outside mutant-like perspective. Uh, and I would say the same thing with media as well. There is so much that could be automated. I think there's a need for media thinkers to come in and say it's not about the most efficient media buy, it's about the most powerful media buy. And, uh, and so again, that balance between what's easy to automate and what needs some, some news-like outside inspiration is, is critical. You've been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit uk.cantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you. Thank you.